Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Okay, what we're going to do right now is bring in David Costin. He is Chief U.S. Equity Strategist for Goldman Sachs. We've got a whole bunch of questions as he resets for S&P 5000. But David Costin, we must celebrate, as you do at Goldman Sachs, with a fully staffed Team Costin today in the office. I want you to explain the path to get your team ensconced at Goldman Sachs again. Well, I... Uh want to definitely uh, congratulate all of our whole team. The entire team is here for the first time in 15 months. Uh, so we're pretty happy about that. And the process has been halting. We had some uh, density restrictions in terms of the seating arrangements, but uh, given the way we've been able to use some extra offices, we're all here today. So uh, I'm happy about that. What changes, and, David, uh, for you as the team gets back around the table together again? What's the big difference? Well, the difference is just the uh, interaction and, and being able to have small conversations uh, about different issues that come up uh, on a computer screen, call someone over to point it, point it out. Uh, you know, some people wear masks still, but generally speaking, everyone, everyone, everyone absolutely has been vaccinated, you know, twice vaccinated, things like that. It's just uh, a much more efficient way to communicate. Of course, we were doing that before with people remotely, but just a, an incremental amount of uh, communication. So I think that's really helpful. Uh, on our team, so we're really happy about uh, about that. And I think in my conversations with clients, you know, more and more of them seem to be uh, to be coming back to uh, working from their their, uh, their offices. And there's different uh, portfolio managers have different time time frames uh, to kind of re, re re engage. But right here today, uh, my team, U.S. Portfolio Strategy, we're all here. Well, let's shine a light on one of the debates at the moment that I imagine you and the team are having right now. The Nasdaq's made a bit of a bounce. David, and earlier on the conversation, earlier in the conversation on this program, we were talking about whether there is a correlation or a causation between what happens with rates and what happens with growth, big tech. What are you and the team saying about that? So the interplay between growth and rates and inflation it's obviously has a lot of different dynamics. And I would unpack that in sort of two ways. Uh, how does inflation affect the equity market, broadly speaking, and then which sectors in particular? And so we think about it, the transmission mechanism on the one hand is on valuation because the impact of higher inflation leads to generally higher rates. And that has an impact particularly on some of the longer duration, longer expected growth stocks. But there's also a transmission mechanism through margins. And so I think we need to bring both of those together and think about it. What is one of the attributes of the technology sector is they have extraordinarily high margins and they've been relatively immune uh, pun intended, they're relatively immune from the higher inflation curtailing their margins. Uh, so on the one hand, you have a suppressing or a depressing effect on valuation for inflation and what that means for rates and the valuation of that long-term expected growth. And on the other hand, you have the durability of their margins as compared with some other more cyclical sectors where their margins may not be so robust in terms of ability to pass through those higher input costs. So I think those are the two things that we are uh, you know, trading off one against the other. And I think our, my, my view is that the margins are going to become the more dominant topic of conversation. The idea of transitory is a debate we will be having consistently until October. 
right? We'll put a stake in the ground and say that's for six months. And so the Fed has indicated its view. Uh, my colleagues at uh, Goldman Sachs economics team also have a view that the inflationary impulses are relatively you know, transitory, and then we'll recede back towards the sort of 2% core PCE next year. So that's sort of the issue where we're going to have that repeatedly. I think the more interesting analytical debate with portfolio managers is around the durability of margins. And margins, Jonathan and Tom and, and Lisa, have recovered now to their pre-pandemic levels. So they're already back to where they were pre-February uh, you know, of uh, 2020. And so question is from here, where are we going? And my view is margins are going to be relatively flat and a big variable there is the tax rate, uh, the corporate taxes. If you told me for a moment, we did not, we will not have uh, corporate tax reform, then we'd have earnings growth of around 10% from this year into 2022. Now that's not our view. We expect there's going to be an increase in corporate taxes. And that is going to mean that growth in earnings is going to be around 5%. And so, so you pay a different multiple for a 5% growth as opposed to 10% growth. David, this has been the story that big tech can pass on pricing increases. Big tech reigns supreme again and again and again. And that is why it is the top holding for so many companies, for so many investors. At what point do you start to worry about concentration risk yet again as hedge funds double down on, say, Facebook positions after already having large, uh, large positions outstanding? Well, it is interesting you mentioned uh, Facebook as uh, it is the largest uh, stock in our hedge fund, uh, very important position. It's a basket we have on Bloomberg, been tracking this now for 20 years. Uh, every 90 days, we're looking at uh, around $2.8 trillion of long and short exposure. And that's the most uh, sort of most uh, most important position. Uh, it supplanted uh, Amazon that previously had that position. We just published that uh, last week. And so, yes, it's a big topic of conversation, just how sort of dominant uh, these can be. Now, right now, Lisa, these five stocks, the big five companies that, that we all know, are comprising around 21% or so of the S&P 500 equity cap. But last September, that was 25%. So the actual concentration has diminished slightly. Uh, and perhaps more importantly is in the growth index. If you look at, say, the Russell 1000 growth index, this was a big issue for diversified growth mutual funds, where the passive index weight in the Russell 1000 of the five largest companies put a number of funds in excess or tripping, if you will, the diversification requirements of the SEC. That has suppressed, that has come down a little bit as these companies, as big and dominant as they yeah. are, relative to the rest of the market, they've receded a little bit in terms of their concentration. So the question we think about and the discussions with fund managers, Lisa, is, well, just how further can they run? Yeah. If you think about what happened year over year in revenue growth in the first quarter, they were up 41%, up 41% compared to the rest of the market where they were up modestly uh, in terms of sales growth. And so the idea in a, and even think of the worst part of the pandemic in the second quarter last year, the worst part of the pandemic, year over year, these companies had 18% revenue growth, rest right. of the market was down around seven. And so we're looking forward and ask ourselves, well, these companies are pretty durable in terms of their growth, their expected uh, in terms of revenue growth, three times faster than the rest of the market uh, in terms of top line sales. They trade at basically about five multiple points higher uh, multiple than the market. Market's like 20, 20, 21 times right now. Uh, these are sort of 25, 26 times. So they're trading at a, a, at a premium valuation, no question about that. 
Uh, but they're also offering better well, growth. David, in the time we've got left, I've got eight ways to go here, and I do want to congratulate your team on their Amazon research of a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was great how you went to cash flow. There's a lot of people out there cautious short-term or a cost and long-term view, and one of them is Douglas Cass. Doug Cass is cautious right now, and Doug Cass is saying, I don't care what Costin thinks about the bull market. There's no volume out there. How does volume play into your view of the equity? markets? Well, when I think about it in terms of liquidity, in terms of low versus high liquidity stocks and, and groups of companies that have more or less uh, liquidity from a, tr from a trading perspective. And uh, the market's actually rewarded companies that have relatively lower liquidity. And that's just a factual statement in terms of the performance. Uh, you know, Doug, I know Doug, I haven't talked to him in a while, but he's generally more on the bear side than the short side. So uh, wouldn't be surprised he have a, a more a more cautious take on the on the world. To be fair, uh, the market right now in S and P is 4,200. Our target for the end of the year is around 4,300. So pretty modest upside, to be very clear, and that is likely to be shifting from uh, more cyclicals, which has done really really well so far, towards more of the growth. And the idea behind this intuition, uh, Tom, is the economy is peaking this quarter in terms of growth rate by 10 percent. And that's going to decelerate, still grow, but at a slowing pace. And that's where the transition and handoff to some of the companies that are positioned to grow uh, at a more extended level. And the intuition behind that is the companies that are investing in their business. And that is what makes some companies differentiated from others. The typical company invests 11% of its cash flow from operations to grow its business. And there's a portfolio of companies where there's 75%. Uh, and so with big companies that we talked about earlier, around yeah. 65%. So it's an enormous amount of investment to grow into 2022. And make no mistake about it, all of the conversations with fund managers are about the growth prospects in 2022. Hey, David, love catching He's up with fired you. fired up. Fired up because the team the is back in the building. Back in the and David, we're excited to have oh, you in the building with us soon around this table at one point in the future, maybe. In the next 12 months lean or over. so. Oh, Lisa, Lisa, could you pass me the tang, please? Lisa can't wait. Please. Right now, let's go to Marvin Lowe. He is with State Street, their senior global macro strategist, always writing really cogent notes linking Fed policy into the markets. Marvin, I want to go from Mr. Gorman and Morgan Stanley gaming out 2022 to the chairman with the weight of the world on his uh, shoulders to what it means for the equity market. I want you to explain to our radio and TV audience what this Fed babble means for stocks. You know what, I, 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 it's as simple as how um, much liquidity and how ultimately dovish the, the, um, the Fed makes it for, for the market. Um, with negative real yields, you've got, a you've got a repressive financial system and equities benefit from the fact that there aren't that many alternatives. If you're buying um, a treasury security at this point, you're buying into the view that you're gonna lose money after inflation, ultimately. Um, in terms of how you parse the Fed, in terms of um, whether or not they're correct that inflation will be transitory is the key that all of us are asking right now. Yeah, I think this is so important, John. And for a radio audience, we've really got to state that we go from Gorman to Powell, and then the jargon is DJIA, is John. Right? I did that for is you. That, That's the Dow that right? Jones Thank you. industrial average. Marvin, when you responded to that question, you weren't talking about a shift in the Fed's reaction function. You were talking about the data may be coming in hotter than they anticipate. Do you think that's the lower bar here, to disagree with their forecast 
to say that actually it will look a little different in the future to the way they anticipate? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the real challenge is that um, the Fed is giving us a message that um, it has it hasn't believed in the forecast in the past. That's why they they become outcomes based. But everything is based on their view um, that data is going to be transitory. So uh, from one instance, believe us that you know the numbers are are going to get back to normal into something that is um, uh, much more familiar to what we've seen before. But at the other side, we don't necessarily believe what we've seen in the past is accurate. Um, the, the risk is that the risk is that not only the data uh, comes in hotter, remains hotter. I think is is kind of the important part of it. Um, and the Fed is so far be, uh, behind the curve um, that it's hard for them to catch up. Um, you know, not necessarily saying an 80s type of environment again, um, but we're talking massive balance sheets with the potential for for slip ups here. Absolutely, Marvin. Do you think in one way they're contradicting themselves when they say we're an outcome based? Federal Reserve, but also we will give you a long enough lead time to know when we're thinking about talking about talking about whatever when it comes to tapering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think and I think what we saw earlier this year in terms of yields, in terms of real yields um, kind of coming off the bottom, you will be being uh, less negative, if you will, um, is an example that the market is not necessarily 100 percent comfortable with the Fed's ability to do everything that it says. Um, having said that, to push against the Fed, um, where it does have cover to remain where it is now is something that kind of keeps us in the range, even though we've had data um, on really both sides in terms of surprise to the upside and downside. Marvin, where's the bigger risk right now, that yields go up or that yields go materially lower? I think it's materially lower, to be honest with you, um, because to get materially, materially lower, you've got to really um, abandon the growth that we expect to have, not only from reopening, but from the fact that we've got as much savings as we have and we're uh, predicting above trend for at least the next year, year and a half or so. If that's the case, and a lot of people would agree with you, then isn't the Fed doing exactly what people would hope the Fed would do? I mean, in other words, run the economy as hot as possible because the downside risk to the economy, the downside risk to yields is way worse and more difficult for them to combat than the alternative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's why risk assets remained um, as as supportive as they have been over the course of the last couple of months, um, despite, uh, you know, whether it's of um, medical virus volatility and or inflation volatility kind of making its way into the market. Marvin, so much of the exercise right now, and I take this at a macro level, is all this news flow coming out of an original natural disaster into something original, a boom economy. We haven't seen this in 47, 48. What should our listeners and viewers do Given a boom economy, how do they allocate given the macro flow of news? Well, um, you know, and, and, and I think and I think um, rates and the Fed is the backdrop around that. So so long as we've got these negative yields in a booming economy, it's really supportive for risk assets. It's really supportive uh, for taking that equity risk. And I think that um, okay. that becomes part of the asset allocation discussion. Um, and then. And then we start right. to parse things. This has been a market where we're looking for those that might benefit more than others. Yeah, John from Coventry says, go Matthew right now. Let's go Matthew, Marvin. When you see the real yield come up from a substantial negative level towards zero, as it did in Switzerland, yeah. as we're seeing German tenure, is that a linear flow, or as John's using this phrase, reaction function, is that a linear or quadratic movement? 
I think I think that the market should be able to handle zero um, percent real yields. Um, you shouldn't need a repressive financial system for companies to do well. There is a level with uh, within kind of that real yield discussion when it becomes much more positive than zero that um, you wind up with alternatives. Um, and the risk reward uh, amongst different asset classes uh, come into play. But a zero real yield, which is at this point from a 10 year perspective, still 80 basis points away, shouldn't be enough to derail um, how companies are able to still perform well um, in an environment where you've got positive growth. Marvin, do you think Europe can handle zero real yields? Yeah, that's, that's certainly um, a much different type of um, uh, equation. You know, their demographics are different. Um, certainly the amount of fiscal stimulus that they have uh, is different. It's going to be it's going to be harder. And, and I think that's the conundrum that the ECB has um, as they try to sound as dovish as they can. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, is moving along the same normalization path without as much of a uh, without as much much of a growth um, response that, that we're seeing here. Ultimately, though, Marvin, isn't that the tension, the issue here? that the U.S. Treasury market can't trade in a vacuum, that it's the global bond market, and then you get a move towards zero real yields on a 10-year Treasury. Can you imagine what it looks like over in Europe? It's, it's the conundrum of the ECB. Um, you know, it's still a lot of different economies with a lot of different speeds, and you've got one uh, organization trying to keep it all together with one number, whereas, you know, certainly for us with the dollar um, in a more cohesive economy, it's, it's much easier. Good luck, June 10th, <laughs> and, 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 the next ECB meeting. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the focus is going to be on what they what they do with PEP. It's going to be, um, you know, everyone certainly is looking at the size of the balance sheets and that being the first stage of normalization. Uh, the envelope themselves, uh, the envelope structure itself uh, leads itself to a natural tapering process unless we hear differently. So um, it's an important meeting in the middle of summer. Absolutely. Marvin, good to catch up. As always, Marvin Lowe there of State Street, the global macro strategist. They've tweeted out 11 times this morning. No, it's not President Trump of uh, a few months and quarters ago. It is Lizanne Saunders. Piece of advice, folks. If you haven't signed up for Twitter, your single reason is the early morning chart setup of Lizanne Saunders, <laughs> L-I-Z-A-N-N-S-O-N-D-E-R-S. And the biggest problem, Paul, is not one single tweet is average no that's smart smart <laughs> do you do this yourself or are your kids helping you no well not not my kids but i have an incredible um research associate uh kevin gordon who's uh two years out of college and yeah, joined yeah. me two years ago and he puts a lot of the charts yeah. together rich kevin gordon G-O-R-D-O-N. Be sure to put them on the And by the way, list. Tom, thank you for spelling my Twitter handle because I have had a rash of imposters in yeah. the last few months. Well, I can understand with your claim over the years. Lizanne, I'm going to go to your chart, which shows uh, underperformance by tech and consumer discretionary. We're talking big tech underperforming. Others, David Costin says a renaissance occurs. Is that Fang's going to have a good Q3? So I, I think we're we're already seeing a bit of movement back into some of those what were oddly the defensive areas of the market last year. Uh, you know, big tech and the big five became the COVID era's uh, defense because it was pretty much the only ecosystem that was operational and helpful in that environment. And I think given what's happened with the ten-year yield. 
stalling a bit here, uh, economic growth a bit weaker. Um, I, I think the view that maybe inflation actually is transitory, I think you've got a bid back toward the, the growth side of the equation. I think it's still be choppy. I think we'll see kind of value and growth factors volleyball a bit, much like we'll see consumer uh, discretionary in tech on one end of the spectrum, energy and financials on the other end. And that's been the name of the game for quite a few months now. But, but growth factors are finding a bit of a bit. Yeah, so we've noticed, Tom and I were just discussing, that the uh, over the last couple of days, the inflation talk has kind of quieted down a little bit. Kind of what is your view, Lizanne, about kind of where we are with inflation? I mean, the Fed obviously has had a very consistent message about it being transitory. What are your thoughts? Well, look up transitory in the Oxford Dictionary. It's not permanent. And okay. <laughs> uh, with, with that basic definition, you the could define the dictionary or the word. <laughs> you could find you could uh, call the seventies era of, of inflation transitory based on that fairly simple definition. So I suppose it's all a function of how long you define that. We know right. the base effects will fade as early as June. We're seeing some of the supply disruptions start to ease a little bit. We some of the speculative froth has come a bit out of uh, certain segments of the commodities market. There are longer-term issues. I think the the problems in semiconductors probably don't uh, get solved uh, imminently. And then it's a question of the psychology of inflation. That doesn't get enough attention. Uh, It ends up, when it turns into a spiral, it has a lot to do with psychology, the psychology of workers demanding higher wages, the psychology of companies deciding to try to pass those uh, on, consumers in turn um, feeding that into wages. So that spiral comes not just based on the, the math, but also based on psychology. So I think watching labor market indicators and then trying to uh, to gauge that psychology will be key to whether this truly is just a short-term phenomenon that's set to fade imminently. I think the pay attention to the bond market. I, I think the bond market is is a more rational um, viewer of what goes on in the economy than at times the stock market is. So I think the the stalling in the 10-year yield may be indicative of an inflation problem that's not quite as dire as some equity market watchers might suggest. So, Lizanne, I, I, the, that labor market uh, point is, I think, really telling here because you, know, you really have to have wage inflation to have any meaningful inflation in this economy. Right. So when you see the McDonald's of the world raising their minimum wage to 13 and Amazon to 15. Is that just anecdotal points or do you think there really is something to that wage inflation story that we need to keep an eye on? Well, it's more than just anecdotal, but I don't think it's yet a sign of significant and sustainable upward pressure uh, akin to what was part of the equation back in the, the 1970s, because if you look more broadly, other than those one-off, and they're big companies, and I think that it's important that they're boosting wages, more broadly, more industries are, uh, whether you look at Indeed or Monster postings, are actually sub-2019 levels. I also think we have to look at uh, myriad wage data metrics. Uh, I'd say put at the bottom of your list uh, average hourly earnings because of the mix shift issue that came into play last year. In April last year, average hourly earnings were up Mm 8.2% in a a month where we lost 20 million jobs. That was simply because the jobs lost skewed toward the lower 
under yeah. the wage spectrum, which boosted the average. The exact opposite is happening now. So unit labor costs, employment cost index, um, those would be the metrics. Atlanta Fed has a median uh, measure called wage tracker. So um, those would be the labor market yeah. metrics I would focus on. Then they're still all generally fairly tame. Listen, the profit is so in. People will say, well, I only want to invest in companies that are profitable. How do you define, how do you study the profit of an individual company or for that matter, a sector? I mean, do you do, you, do, you do Graham Dowd and Cottle and go down to the net income or do you go up the income statement? Or, well, beautifully what, for me, what, what do I, don't, do? I don't have to do that anymore. I, I, no, I, I know you don't do it, but what would, what's Saunders 101 on how you measure profit? Well, I think it, certainly in this environment, you have to do some normalization. Um, I like the methodology that uh, I saw first pioneered by uh, Steve Luthold, which is five-year normalized earnings. And it's, it's actually a couple of interesting combos in there. It's, it's four and a half years of historic earnings, not as far back as Schiller, but reasonable. You, you can skip over mm-hmm. some of the extremes like a COVID situation. Two quarters of forward earnings. So you get a little bit of that embedded forward and then takes the midpoint between operating earnings and reported earnings. And I have found that that's a, a pretty smooth way of looking at earnings that, that blends that necessity of looking at what they've actually earned, understanding the market tends to be forward-looking, also understanding, especially in extreme environments, that the spread between reported and operating can be significant. And that's about the cleanest way I've seen to analyze the overall market, an individual company, or a broad sector. Lizanne Saunders, out on Twitter, at L-I-Z-A-N-N-S-O-N-D-E-R-S. I think I got the spelling right. (laughs) 11, 12, 13 charts every morning. Really quite good. She's with a small firm. Charles Schwab is our chief investment uh, strategist. It's now time to frame uh, the Fed. We can do that with Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives, her president and founder. Julia, the equity market is voting. It has been up. Maybe it's a raging rally, as Doug Cass calls it. How do you use the stock market within your Fed economics? The Fed, the stock market, rather, is voting optimism. Right, right. And Chair Powell is a financial conditions guy. So he does use financial conditions broadly to calibrate how easy or how supportive policy is. And right now the markets are saying, yes, uh, policy is supportive and it's going to work and it's going to create a strong recovery. And I think that's exactly where they want it to be. Within the equation, where do you see that with an investment? We don't talk enough about it. It's a smaller number than consumption. But investment, well, it's got a volatility. What is that volatility right now into the end of the year? Well, we saw a very strong uh, investment recovery last year. In fact, investment ended up stronger at a higher level than pre-pandemic by the end of the year. So um, I think that that bodes well for uh, gains in productivity this cycle. Uh, And also for that optimism you talked about earlier, companies are putting capital to work. They obviously see prospects uh, for making money uh, by doing so. So I think that that's a very good signal. As you say, there is some volatility and it probably won't keep rising at the pace we saw in the second half of last year. Um, but it does seem to be on a positive track. Judy, how do you gauge productivity and how easy is it to get a clean read 
on what is happening in this economy? Oh, it's, it's really hard right now. I mean, it's going to be hard for a while. Everything is going to be extremely noisy this year uh, with the reemployment of a lot of people, with the shifting in the mix of workers. Um, we've seen, as we usually see, a strong productivity uh, performance during a recession as companies struggle to survive by squeezing every bit of efficiency out uh, of their operations that they can. Um, but I think, you know, so it's going to take a little bit of time to see whether we settle at a higher uh, trend in productivity than we did last cycle. Last cycle, we saw pretty disappointing performance throughout the recovery and expansion. Uh, and I think that there is some thought that, you know, the pandemic accelerated business transformation. Uh, it brought forward a lot of plans uh, and that could result in higher productivity and then the question is, how do we balance that against the frictions associated with dealing from where does work from home go from here? How do companies navigate and manage their workforce uh, with some employees wanting to stay remote and others wanting to come back to the office? That's going to be a management challenge. Julia, how do you think about what's happening in D.C. and how you plug that into your forecast, your outlook for this economy? I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is sort of the political theater around the infrastructure bill. We're not adjusting our forecast because we do think it's going to get passed. Uh, and the question really for us is how big is it and how much of it is paid for through higher taxes? Uh, and that still seems to be in a state of flux. But overall, we do think that the bulk of the infrastructure proposals goes through. The question is just is it bipartisan or a party line vote. Well, but Julia, there's a question of how much this higher inflationary regime that people talk about hinges on this presumption that you talk about, that infrastructure will get past something resembling where it is right now in the proposals. Yeah, no, I think it is an important contributor to the outlook, although, you know, I think remember that infrastructure is something that gets spread over 10 years. So it's not a replacement for a fading fiscal impulse. Um, we are going to see a fading fiscal impulse. We've had a tremendous recovery push uh, that has been stoking a lot of the supply chain pressures. That's going to ease back as we move through the year and into next year. But underlying that is a pretty decent recovery so far. So um, we, we expect, given the GDP tracking, we're going to see a nice bounce back in May hiring. I think April was the outlier. Uh, maybe we do have some frictions reconnecting people to employers and some sectoral reallocation. But there's a lot of demand out there, and I think ultimately that's going to lead a strong labor market recovery. And you won't need, we won't be as reliant on the fiscal impulse to get a decent economic performance next year. So I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. I do think it, um, it will cause sectoral reallocation. You're pulling in resources for this infrastructure uh, you know, uh, agenda, and that will move resources towards that from other sectors so that, that might be different otherwise. But I think we are going to hand the baton back to the natural expansionary dynamic uh, towards the end of this year and into next. Julia, can you elaborate a little bit about April being the outlier and expecting hiring to really pick up? What has been responsible for this labor market shortage at a time when there are still so many people out of work? Yeah, I think there's a lot of frictions. There was actually a really nice article on, on restaurant workers in the Washington Post this morning that was talking to the workers themselves. We're coming out of a pandemic, uh, and we, we shouldn't forget that. A lot of people have made changes in their lives 
they think about their work differently now. It is forever changed. If you are on the front lines, um, you don't look at your sector the same. And so you're making decisions about where do I want to be, what do I want to be doing, and what am I willing to work for? And so we're seeing that negotiation happening right now. That It's not a question of whether people re- will return to work. It's where they'll return to work at what wage uh, and then how that all sort of settles out uh, in coming months. But we've got millions of people who are actively right. looking for work. Julia, very quickly here, one final question to your point on wages. Are they transitory? Yeah, I think what we're seeing, Tom, is something similar to what we're seeing on the price side. So you've got uh, a, a excess demand for workers in certain sectors. That's going to lead to a level shift up in their wage rates. We're seeing that very clearly uh, in the leisure and hospitality sector. So, uh, And I think that's long overdue. So that's great news for those workers. That could be a relative price shift, right? We could see less buoyant wage gains uh, if that's compressing profits in other uh, at the top end of the wage spectrum. And that's something we saw at the end of the last cycle pre-COVID when we were in a very strong labor market. We saw the lower wage workers getting the strongest gains, the, the biggest raises, and the top end workers seeing their wage gains slow a bit. And that kept the overall wage bill uh, sort of moderate, the growth in wages moderate. And, and I don't see any reason why we shouldn't see that same kind of dynamic with a relative shift with lower wage workers, mm. especially frontline workers, getting the biggest raises as we reopen the economy. Julia, always enjoy catching up with you, particularly this morning. Julia Coronado there of Macro Policy Perspective. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.